Pleasure to be joined by a lawyer and a lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University, Jeffrey Myers, talking about uh, the more twists and turns in U.S. politics and, of course, the, the Trump-Russia investigation by the special counsel, Robert Mueller. Uh, Jeffrey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I am well. Um, I'm starting to think we should do this conversation almost daily at the, at the rate things are happening out there. It's yeah, crazy. the compression of the news cycle, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Every hour. Yeah, no kidding. Um, why don't we start with probably the most interesting, uh, the two well-known names, but the most interesting of the two, uh, Michael Cohen, who of course is uh, Mr. Trump's former counsel and uh, somebody who is, um, I don't know, flips the right word, but has definitely uh, spent a lot of time now with Robert Mueller uh, talking at length about a, a variety of things. And he's a guy who would have been close to Mr. Trump, would know a lot of things, uh, would know a lot of details that maybe uh, the president is uh, is not willing to have somebody tell. So um, it was a surprise court appearance. What wasn't a surprise was a, a, a guilty plea to lying to Senate about the Trump Tower project in Russia, essentially telling Congress, yeah, the whole thing ended or about January of 2016, when in fact it was still uh, well in the works into June of that year amid the Republican presidential primary. So as you look at this thing and the implications, what strikes you? Well, I mean, I think what strikes me is, I mean, there's no, to my sense, there's no real coincidence in the fact that this revelation, that uh, Mr. Cohen uh, coming forward and pleading guilty to lying or misleading Congress, specifically with regard to uh, the period of time uh, when uh, he continued to work on behalf of Mr. Trump to uh, lobby Russian officials for the Trump Tower Moscow was where he'd initially told Congress that it was January, that it went well into the summer, in fact. I think one of the reasons that probably this is coming out right now is because we don't know what's the, we don't know what the question, we don't know how Mr. Trump answered the questions which were asked to him of Mr. Mueller that he submitted in writing, but likely one of them was about specifically that, because the question of whether or not the Trump camp, Mr. Trump himself and those around him and working on the campaign were, had a kind of uh, business interest in uh, making nice with the Russians for the purposes of erecting this uh, tower in Moscow, which by all accounts, in order to do something like a big business development project in Moscow, would actually, believe it or not, go right through uh, the, Mr. Putin and his closest aides. Whether they were, in fact, you know, sort of compartmentalizing that and separating it off from the campaign to avoid conflict of interest or not. So it may be that Mr. Trump says yes and Mr. Cohen says no, and now that creates a kind of a, a stronger case against Mr. Trump, obviously. And that really lies at the heart of, although we say it's not a, it's not a, collusion isn't a legal term of art, it's a, it refers to a body of crimes uh, and a series of actions with political consequences as well. And at the heart of it would really be this question of whether or not Mr. Trump was motivated by financial interests in getting uh, this Trump Tower deal in Moscow. And the, 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 and that connects also to the Manafort piece, which you may want to ask me about next, but it connects to the Manafort piece in the sense that folks will recall that Mr. Manafort, who was Mr. Trump's second campaign manager, stepped down after the Republican National Convention when it was revealed uh, in part that he had been involved or instrumental in changing the Republicans' policy regarding arming um, Ukraine and regarding, um, you know, um, its position vis-a-vis Russia to be friendlier and less assertive. Uh, and the question was, was that a, a, as a part of or in keeping with a broader kind of plan to um, placate the Russians with the design of uh, having this lucrative project um, um, 
this lucrative project approved. And so what you can see happening in terms of, um, you know, the week where Mr. Cohen pleads guilty, Mr. Manafort is charged with breaking his plea agreement and feeding information to the Trump um, to the Trump operation or to Trump's counsel is a kind of honing in or a closing in on this set of events and the constellation of things that were going on around um, the question of whether there was going to be a Trump Tower in in Russia. And again, that's also come, coming in in June around the same time as that infamous meeting where uh, Mr. Trump's son and Mr. Kushner and Mr. Manafort were offered so-called dirt on Hillary Clinton, right, by um, officials linked to the Kremlin. Yeah. There's this, is, I think that Mr. Mr. Mueller's, again, we, we are reading the tea leaves because Mr. Mueller hasn't revealed anything to us yet. We have to re- look at the indictments and try to figure out what they tell us and to look at the moves that he makes and try to figure out what the tells. But this is really a situation where things are getting closer and closer to the president, and the focus is getting more and more, and more narrowly um, on ex- precisely the nature and scope of uh, any Russian uh, collusion. Again, that's the proper word there to describe the broader body of laws that involve um, conspiracy and intent to defraud the United States. Um, whether, in fact, it did exist. And, and again, it's, it's known that this seems to be having an effect also on Mr. Trump, insofar as he's known to have said that it was a red line as soon as his business interests were probed, that that was off-limits for Mr. Mueller. And again, Mr. Mueller's now well into his business limits. So the wild card in all this thing is that we don't really know what kind of um, efforts Mr. Whitaker, the interim um, attorney general, is, is doing behind the scenes in terms of uh, constraining Mr. Mueller or not. It doesn't appear at this time that he's done anything to sort of constrain him, um, but we really won't know until Mr. Mueller, you know, decides to make his uh, submit his report, uh, and uh, you know, the, the next we'll see what happens there. I'm so I'm cautiously optimistic that it looks like so far Mr. Whitaker isn't necessarily leaning into it, but I wouldn't say the danger is over. And I say the longer Mr. Whitaker remains Attorney General, the less legitimate, by the way, he is going to be because of the nature of his appointment process. All right, let's. Uh, I want to hone in on a couple things uh, within there. First and foremost, the timing of that, as you mentioned, uh, this comes after Mr. Trump has submitted his written answers to Mr. Mueller's questions. Mm-hmm. We get the Cohen thing sprung. There's a lot of speculation out there. The timing is no coincidence and that uh, uh, Mr. Mueller put himself in a position where he didn't have to kind of show his cards on the Cohen front until uh, it meant the most impact, which is after the written answers were submitted. So if Mr. Trump, I mean, we're going to assume some things here. If Mr. Trump was asked a question pertinent to information that Mr. Cohen has now given, and he has answered, um, I don't know how the word is, incorrectly or, or whatever, uh, what, what's at stake here, Jeffrey? Is this perjury charge potentially in the play, or how does that work out? Well, okay, for starters, I mean, what's going to, what, if you see somebody who's made a, if you see somebody like Mr. Cohen has, you know, perhaps, who knows, we can only speculate as to his calculations, whether he thought, you know, sort of, he would protect President Trump and eventually himself get a pardon or not. We don't know. But once there's enough evidence, basically, to suggest that he lies, so that there's overwhelming evidence, and that's likely what the Mueller folks have, and that's how they leaned into him to get this guilty plea. You're just going to make a fool of him because the evidence is there. That suggests that there's a possibility, again, we don't know, but what if Mr. Trump answered in the contrary, that there's ev- now they've turned Mr. Cohen uh, and because and likely turned him because of the, the evidence they were able to demonstrate that this was in fact not the case. So we don't know what that corroborating evidence is at this stage. I also have to say, as a, as a law professor and somebody who's got criminal law students as we speak, writing their midterm exams, I think one of the things that student, that 
folks are very curious about, and this is true in the United States, it's also true in Canada, is wondering, well, how can Mr. Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Cohn be made to talk? How can he be cooperating like that? Isn't he violating the privilege which exists between a lawyer and a client? And there's a couple things to understand on that. First, it's the... Um, the privilege which exists between a lawyer and a client, um, it, belo- it does belong to the client, so it's up to the client to waive it, okay? So normally you couldn't, a lawyer couldn't unilaterally do something to break the privilege without the client first waiving it. However, the privilege doesn't apply to communications between a lawyer and a client that aren't for the purpose of soliciting legal advice, okay? So if the relationship between the lawyer and client is designed for them to be jointly involved in a criminal enterprise, or it's designed for them to be involved in some kind of business enterprise that has nothing to do with legal advice, then the contents of those conversations or those communications are never privileged in the first place. Right? So when you the, lear, the history that you learn about Mr. Cohen's relationship with Mr. Um, uh, Trump is while Mr. Cohen was licensed as, alert, uh, as an attorney and a member of the New York Bar, he was only had one client, so-called client, and that was Mr. Trump, and that largely he was acting as a so-called fixer, meaning that he was sort of, um, you know, playing a variety of roles um, in the Trump campaign, some of which had legal dimensions, but many of which had to do with just um, managing Mr. Trump's affairs, negotiating on his behalf, and obviously was involved in the political and the business side of things without being separated off, right? So that's why, in case folks are wondering, geez, how is it possible that a lawyer could be talking about these things? Well, he's not talking about legal advice that he gave to Mr. Trump. What he's talking about is, um, you know, uh, criminal, potential criminal activity, and at least stuff outside of the protective embrace of the privilege. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, the other thing I wanted to hone in on and that I found really interesting about uh, this latest development with Mr. Cohen, it, it seems like Mr. Mueller is now taking uh, lying in, in front of Congress as part of his investigative domain. And I'm wondering if that kind of implicates or begins to look at other members of Trump's family who potentially made comments in front of Congress about this Trump Tower project and, and puts them out on a limb somewhere. Yeah, well, I think the first, the next person out on a limb and the kind of uh, what I'm waiting for is I'm waiting to see if there's going to be an indictment of Donald Trump Jr. I think that would be the, if that would be a short, I don't think there's going to be an indictment of Mr. Trump himself. And I've said that the reason for that before is because the Department of Justice policy and the belief of Mr., by all accounts, the belief of Mr. Mueller himself is that a sitting president can't be indicted and that the proper resolution for a sitting president's illegality is impeachment. Okay, so there's very few people who think that he's going to try to attempt to take a test case the Supreme Court of indicting a sitting president. But indicting, he's indicting, obviously there have been many charges, many, many indictments uh, in this case, and the latest one, again, is of his longtime personal fixer aide or lawyer in quotation marks, and Mr. Cohen, is, is the next person going to be his son who's worked in his business and his campaign and, again, has been present at some of these key moments? Is it going to be Jared Kushner, who's a son-in-law who works in the administration? And then once those individuals potentially are indicted, um, what kind of pressure would that bring to bear uh, in practical terms on Mr. Trump? It would be enormous, right? So that is the kind of thing we're looking for right now, we're, we're looking at right now. And typically, uh, when, um, you know, the attorney, when, when authorities investigate, you know, crime and corruption in the United States, they tend to move from the outer uh, characters into the into the heart, the center of things. And again, there have been a lot of people right in the inner circle, but this would be obviously decisive. So we're, we're keeping our eyes out. Um, you know, we're looking for what's going to happen with that. You know, would Mr. Trump potentially let his son or son-in-law 
uh, be threatened with jail, right? And I also note to you that one of the things that Mr. Mueller so far shows that he's willing to do is he's willing to, he's to some extent pardon-proofing things um, by allowing, in many cases, state authorities to go ahead with related or overlapping charges. And those, of course, can't be pardoned because they're not within the federal jurisdiction by a sitting president. So there's really no way out. He's creating a situation where there's really no way out, no matter what happens, and putting this kind of increasing pressure looming over you know, his family now and his business. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I do want to touch on Paul Manafort, who is another piece, a familiar name, yeah. uh, who the special counsel is accused of lying and breaching a plea agreement. So what, what, kind of, what do you read into that? Well, I mean, it, you know, it depends. It's, it's not usually the case where somebody has a, a plea agreement and then they, they're permitted to um, continue to communicate with the co-accused or, the, in this case, the, un, the unnamed co-conspirator. Um, they're permitted to continue to talk to their counsel, but it's a gray area unless it's explicitly spelled out. Sometimes that's okay, but what appears to be the case in this fact is not only was there ongoing communication here, but once again, it's clear, again, based on the evidence, at least that Mr. Mueller believes it's clear, that the evidence is overwhelmingly demonstrating that there have been, there's been ongoing lying since the cooperation agreement, which means the whole cooperation agreement collapses and, you know, Mr. Um, Manafort can go to jail for a whole heck of a lot longer. Um, and so, but again, uh, we're always looming over this question is to what extent could Mr. Trump pardon him? And again, to the extent they're federal charges, theoretically that could be done, but there's also now looking like some of the state's attorney generals taking, um, looking into or already um, uh, looking uh, to, to try Mr. Manafort for various crimes in their own jurisdictions. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to know what's the outcome of this, but likely the outcome of this is just um, it's really another piece of pressure which is being brought to bear, and it shows the strength of the evidence, I think, that Mr. Mueller has if he's able to cause these people to plead guilty to doing things like lying to Congress. But it is, of course, the case that in most um, questions where you're talking about, for example, um, you know, the, um, these types of conspir- political conspiracy uh, crimes, that again, it's, not often, it's often the case that it's not the conspiracy so much which can be demonstrated, but it's lying that can be demonstrated, right? And so, and the offense of lying to Congress is a very serious offense. Yeah, no, it is. And it's interesting to see these, uh, as you put it, sort of uh, the pieces of the cage come together as these options slowly get taken away and this, this sort of legal cage built around the president. So the, uh, the, the wild card, sorry, Shane, the wild yeah. card, just to let me reemphasize, sure. again, Matt Whitaker. And how so? Well, just because it, it's it, it, it's it, he is te- he is he is overseeing at this time the Mueller investigation, and he has significant um, levers at his disposal to constrain what Mueller does, what's in the report, and you know again his legitimacy of as Attorney General is in question by virtue of the fact that he hasn't been Senate confirmed as required by the Constitution, but he has during this interim period, as long as he's temporary and they put somebody else in there, um, it, that's resolvable. But as lo- the longer he stays there and the longer he's overseeing this, the more suspect it is, but also the more dangerous it is because he has a lot of power that he can exercise to shut things down. Interesting. Uh, before I let you go, I do want to touch on uh, the NAFTA agreement or the USMCA or the yeah. CAUSM if you're in Canada or whatever Mexico's calling it. Um, there was uh, on the sidelines of the G20 last week, there was yeah. this uh, signing thing. But I just wonder how much of that was, was sort of theatrical compared to what we might see in the months ahead because uh, all three countries now have to ratify. And at least in two of the three, Mexico and the United States, I think that that's going to be challenging to say the least. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Mr. Trump clearly wanted to showcase this uh, signing as a victory. And, um, you know, in effect, he was very much emphasizing, as you indicated, the name change, right? No longer calling it NAFTA and calling it the uh, USMC, right? Um, and, and of course, Mr. And there was some tension remarked upon by the media, and I think others rightly so, that, you know, Mr. Uh, Trudeau insisted on calling it the new NAFTA, um, and the idea was, but there's some aspects of this, and there's aspects, uh, uh, and and then there's of course the new and the old, the outgoing, very unpopular uh, President Nieto of Pre- of of Mexico, who's on his way out in a new regime that's much different politically than his own, and much differently inclined towards the Trump administration, is coming in very shortly. So this is all kind of last minute with very little. Um, mandate, I think, on the Mexican side. And then I think on the Canadian side, I think most Canadians are comfortable with what our government has done and renegotiated, including some progressive uh, things in there. Um, But it's not clear that Congress is going to approve or agree with all this. And it's never been the case that the president can just wave a magic wand. Uh, Some of these things involve, likely involve congressional oversight and congressional approval. So it's it's not a done deal yet. Uh, It was clearly the optics that Mr. Um, Trump wanted to sort of set up. But I'm not sure that people didn't see through that completely. Just out of curiosity, Jeffrey, what's your, what do you think your chances are that the deal fails to ratify in, in the United States or, or Mexico? I think they're pretty high in one and probably a little high in You the know, other. it's hard for me to speculate. I have very, very little expertise on the, on the um, Mexican system. I mean, to my knowledge, you know, there's a new president who's coming in who's a, who's a progressive um, some people call him the Bernie Sanders of Mexico. So he's this kind of social democratic ethos. He's skeptical of Trump's, um, you know, ideology and his um, his attitude towards Mexico. But at the same time, I'm probably looking to stabilize the relationship. So it's very hard to um, predict in that front what's going to happen. Um, as far as what's going to happen in the United States, well, you know, again, we're going into an election in 2020. You've got a, you've got divided power. Um, I think it's really going to depend on the assessments, um, you know, of of a co- of a, of a really, um, you know, Congress is Democrat, right? So they're going to make assessments about whether or not this benefits Rust Belt working class Americans or not. They don't want to hand a victory uh, to Mr. Trump unnecessarily, but if the revisions were would help more than harm, they'd be tempted to do so. And then there's a Republican Senate, so it's 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 not clear what to what degree this is going to occupy the political interest or energy. Um, of lawmakers in the United States. I'll say this, that the relationship, the trading relationship, particularly with China, which you saw also had some newsworthy moments in terms of the negotiations between Mr. Xi and Mr. Trump offside at the uh, Argentina G20, that's a much bigger, you know, all overall relative uh, trading um, uh, question for the United States and, and will probably take up more oxygen than the one with Canada, which gets a lot of uh, press here in Canada, uh, but less so in the U.S., yeah, no, truly. Well, Jeff, I don't know if we're going to be able to, I might have to call you back in the next hour or two, depending on how fast these <laughs> things unfold. But uh, always good to talk to you, and we'll talk to you soon.